Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Carol Warner. I'm the Executive Director of the Environmental and Energy Study Institute. And on behalf of the ESI, uh, we'd like to welcome you to this briefing this afternoon uh, to take a look at what's in the Paris Climate Deal and indeed how did we get there. Um, this was a, a very, very momentous event globally uh, that happened in Paris. I'm sure everyone saw lots and lots of press, many, many uh, articles, uh, much uh, discussion with regard to those negotiations that were in December of 2015, and of course in the months and indeed years of preparation leading to those very, very important climate negotiations that resulted in a very, very important global agreement coming out of Paris. We're going to take a look at that this afternoon. I think we have a wonderful panel to kind of lead us through that in terms of what happened, why, what is it, and indeed bringing us perspectives not only from here in the United States, uh, and we will hear from one of our lead negotiators with regard to that, but also to have perspectives from the host country of those Paris negotiations, as well as hearing from uh, a counselor at the German embassy. Germany has obviously been an enormously important climate leader for a very, very long time. So to start off our discussion this afternoon, uh, as we take a look at, at this global agreement that involved virtually every country in the world, uh, which is something that is sobering and also very, very exciting uh, to understand, to comprehend. Our first speaker will be Dan Dr. Daniel Riefsneider, who is the Deputy Assistant Secretary for Environment at the State Department. Dr. Riefsneider has been the Deputy Assistant Secretary uh, for Environment since 2006, uh, where he is responsible for U.S. involvement across a broad range of issues related to environmental quality, conservation, water, and of course global climate change. And he has led U.S. delegations under uh, multiple, multiple bilateral agreements and treaties. And in his role, obviously, he has always worked very closely with the Special Envoy for Climate Change and served as the alternate chair for the Major Economies Forum on Energy and Climate Change. Uh, Dr. Snyder has been involved on climate issues and looking at the environment and energy issues during his work at the Department of State. It goes clear back uh, to the late 80s. And indeed, he was um, the alternate head of the U.S. delegation to the negotiations in 1991 and 92 that led to the U.N. Framework Convention on Climate Change, which was signed in Rio. Before going to state, uh, Dr. Ruth Snyder also came from a background at NOAA, uh, where he was for a number of years, so he brings a lot of experience coming from the scientific agency dealing with oceans and atmosphere. Yeah. Well, good afternoon, and uh, let me say it's a great pleasure to be here today to give, um, to talk about the Paris Agreement on climate change. Um, I'd like to thank my good friend, Carol Warren, 
uh, for inviting me and also uh, say hello to my colleagues, Bruno uh, Polo from the French Embassy and Georg Mauer from the German Embassy. Um, let me first say that I'm here not as a representative of the Department of State, um, but in my formal capacity as the co-chair of the ad hoc group on the German platform. And I will speak from uh, that perspective today. I'd like to cover three things in the time I have. First, uh, I'd like to talk about the negotiating process that led to the Paris Agreement. Second, uh, how the negotiations differed in important respects from what might be considered more traditional negotiations. Uh, and third, some key features of the Paris Agreement. So to begin, um, the negotiations that led to the Paris Agreement officially began in 2012, following the adoption of a decision at COP17 in Durban um, that established the ad hoc group on the Durban platform, or the ADP for short. Uh, the group met throughout 2012, 2013, 2014, and 2015 under three different sets of co-chairs, one from a developed country and one from a developing country. Parties did not produce a negotiating text until February of last year. In fact, it was this very week last year in Geneva, I should just note, um, uh, in, in Geneva that we had that meeting. Um, that is when my co-chair and I, Dr. Um, Dr. Ambassador Ahmed Jogla from Algeria, uh, began our work. What we had going in were 39 pages of elements for a negotiating text that were annexed to the decision taken by the COP at its 17th session in Durban, or sorry, in Lima, the so-called Lima Call for Climate Action. Our job at the Geneva session was to put together a draft negotiating text before May, as called for in the Lima decision. To do this, the text had to be acceptable to all parties. This meant that the process in which it was produced had to be legitimate in the eyes of all parties. And that, in turn, meant that all parties would need to have an opportunity to provide their input. To get there, Ahmed and I asked the parties to tell us how the elements from Lima would need to be modified, what parts they wished to modify, and what additions they wished to make. We established only two rules. Um, first, that each proposal had to be read out in the plenary session so that everyone would know where it came from. And second, um, they, they had to submit the proposals to the Secretariat in writing so that we could be sure we had very clearly what each party had proposed. It was clear to us, even at the time, that what would emerge from such a process would not be a thing of beauty. And it was not. Um, the 39 pages of elements grew into the Geneva negotiating text that ran to some 86 pages. It was, not much, it was not so much a negotiating text as it was a compilation of the views of all parties. Um, still, putting together such a text in essentially the first three days in that six-week session in Geneva, six-day session in Geneva, took people's breath away. Uh, and it created a very positive spirit, um, a very critical element given, um, very critical element um, given the rancor and the acrimony so familiar to the UN FCCC process. Evidence of the spirit could be seen even at the outset when parties agreed to refrain from making opening statements in plenary and instead to make their statements available uh, electronically to save time. We were also able at the time to hold plenary discussions on three key issues. One was on the structure of the agreement, because 
in my sense that people have very different ideas in mind about what an ultimate agreement might look like. Uh, the cycles for updating the agreement uh, and the issue of markets, or what I referred to at the time as markets, non-markets, and no markets. These were widely divergent on that issue. Uh, Geneva accomplished its task, and the Geneva negotiating text was translated into all human languages and circulated to all parties in March of last year, uh, well in advance of the May deadline. The ADP then met thereafter in Bonn for two weeks in June. Its main task at that time became consolidating and streamlining this 86-page text, and also trying to eliminate options. I forget how many options we had. In some cases, I think they approached 18 in one particular paragraph. Um, so this proved to be a very difficult task. And uh, by the end of the session, parties have managed to reduce that text by about four pages from the 86 pages that they began with. But everybody was happy, it was a good spirit, and so forth. They were just getting frustrated that things weren't going faster. Um, nevertheless, I would just tell you several very critical things emerged um, at, that, at that June meeting. The first was the parties agreed uh, to the schedule that we had proposed, uh, and, and that included working outside the normal hours. Um, they agreed to work at lunchtime, they agreed to work into the evening, which was kind of unheard of at that point. Um, and a very, uh, a very important accomplishment if we were going to get this work done in the time we had. The second was that they agreed to work with a set of 11 co-facilitators that Ahmed and I had carefully uh, recruited to help us uh, breaking down the, the, the work into different, different sections. Um, and again, that had been extremely controversial. Parties were very reluctant previously to uh, let us use co-facilitators. Um, third, they agreed to work with textual proposals that were prepared uh, by the Secretariat to help consolidate the stream and streamline and reduce the number of options. That may seem, this may all seem like just basic to you, but I'm telling you, in that process, this was extraordinary because people were so suspicious um, and so distrustful uh, that they, they wouldn't even allow uh, the Secretary to help them in that respect uh, very often. Um, fourth, parties almost universally urged that broad conceptual discussions be avoided. Uh, and instead, they wanted to see cons complex concepts such as differentiation and equity um, taken up in the specific discussions of mitigation, adaptation, finance, technology development and transfer, and capacity building, where having a context made them somewhat more attractive. I thought that was also quite revealing because it, uh, we've spent endless, I can't, I don't want to subtract years off my life for all the conceptual discussions we've had in the UN that just go in great political circles, but this was very, uh, very positive. Fifth, um, they agreed to hold a series of side events that enabled parties who had prepared um, intended nationally determined contributions. Those are the specific actions that each country proposes to take to present what they had done and to respond to questions. And that may seem also to you like, you know, well, what's the, what's the problem here? But there had been so much controversy generated in Lima over the issue of ex-ante review. In other words, were countries going to be reviewing each other's INDCs and getting to comment on them before they were finalized? Would NGOs and others be able to do this in an official setting? Highly controversial in Lima, and it ended up not going forward as part of the Dependent decision. So even bringing that back, just to the extent of having these side events, we had to call them side events so people could relax, 
um, and then uh, have them organized in a way that people could just present what they've done and others could learn from it was, was extraordinary in my view. And these, I might add a sixth, um, uh, that by the end of the meeting, parties actually asked the co-chairs to help prepare uh, the next session by undertaking further elements to consolidating and streamlining the text and reducing options without omitting any views of the views of any parties. That, again, may also seem like a small thing, but in the context of the Framework Convention on Climate Change, it was huge. Um, we agreed to do so, Ahmed and I, uh, provided that we could go further in the streamlining consolidation effort and also in um, trying to reduce the number of options without taking positions off the table and what the parties themselves have done. But we also said, look, there are areas where it's clear something is going to go into the agreement, ultimately, because this agreement is only going to take effect from 2024. So you can't put something that deals with um, actions before 2020 in the agreement. And they said, okay. And then we said, it's also clear that you're going to have some provisions that go into a decision. Um, and you know, you're not going to put things like um, uh, certain things in a decision, but these are, these are actions that are much nourished. And decisions are where you spell out details of what goes into the agreement, kind of like the difference between a law and the regulations to implement the law. So they gave us permission, in effect, permission, um, to take this document and try to begin distributing these things in the appropriate category. And what we did then, we produced something for the following session um, that uh, began at the end of August that came to be referred to as the co-chair's tool. I won't mention all of that various inappropriate remarks people made about the coaches too. But in any event, it was an effort to begin separating these things into these different categories. We only had three parts. One was agreement, one was decision, and one was, in effect, other. And other were a number of provisions that were very important to the final um, decision, final agreement, but where we couldn't, as co-chairs, decide where it belonged, and we needed further discussion from the parties. That was the document that we had going into the session then after June that took place at the end of August, beginning of September for about a week. Um, that was um, very good. I think the session, once again, was very positive. People said, you know, the, the ambiente is good, but if they were concerned in June about the lack of progress, they became even more concerned at the end of that session in September. Um, and they thought we were moving too slowly, and it was at this point they asked us to, to undertake a more significant step forward uh, prior to the October session, um, which was the last one before Paris. Now, for that session, Ahmed and I produced a non-paper on the 5th of October that consisted of nine pages of agreement text and 26 articles. Uh, we also produced 11 pages of decision text. This reduced the Geneva negotiating text from over 80 pages to 20. Without doubt, the non-paper generated controversy, as you might imagine. Um, some said that we'd gone too far. Uh, they said that we badly miscalculated. Uh, but I believe that the October 5th non-paper was the single most important precursor to the Paris Agreement that would emerge just over two months later on the 12th of December. This is because the October 5th non-paper created a vision of what the Paris outcome might look like, and it gave parties a workable template from which to fashion the final deal. Up to that point, they had nothing but the Geneva negotiating text and a revised but still unworkable co-chair's tool. 
Um, there are many other ways in which the ADP negotiations proved unlike any I have seen before, but despite these differences, they ultimately succeeded. And I'd like to just say, why is that? I would note that in Copenhagen, there was what I've described as an upstairs-downstairs problem. That is, there, were, there was a major disconnect in Copenhagen between what took place on the second floor, literally on the second floor, of the negotiating hall among some key heads of state and government, and what was taking place on the first floor between negotiations, between negotiators of all the parties. When the two years came together, they simply didn't mesh. In addition, in Copenhagen, the negotiating text uh, on the table when the parties arrived was well over 200 pages. The COP presidency at the time undertook efforts among a subset of parties to develop a more workable uh, basis for an agreement. Uh, but when other parties learned of those efforts uh, in the press, and they reacted very negatively to them, questioning the legitimacy of any separate process um, or text. Uh, the fear and suspicion that, that arose from that episode rippled long after Copenhagen. Fortunately, we were able to learn from the past and improve on it. First, the ADP last year was characterized by the absence of protracted discussions on process. This was because Amin and I met with each of the negotiating groups at length and then went up to each negotiating session. For each session, we prepared a scenario note setting forth our thoughts on how to organize the session, and we changed the approach based on the discussions that we had with the parties. Uh, by the time we got to the formal negotiating sessions, most, if not all, of these procedural concerns had been resolved. And we also changed course as necessary in the course of the negotiating sessions themselves. Second, Ahmed and I were also clear from the outset that our in our discussions with the French presidency that the ADP should end its work by a date certain and that afterward negotiations should continue only in calm. In other words, there should be only one negotiating process underway at any particular time in Paris. The French presidency, I can tell you, completely agreed. Uh, and we did this. Uh, we worked together with the French presidency, agreeing that we should end our work in the ADP on the 5th of December. Um, and that was when we made the formal handoff that was actually televised, um, presenting to Minister Fabius the text. And third, as described, there was never any separate effort to develop a negotiating text. And the French presidency was clear on this point throughout the year, that there was no other negotiating text than that that we were producing in the ADP, and that there would be no other text. Uh, this went very far to providing the needed uh, reassurances to the parties. Finally, I might add that France, which took over as president of the COP in Paris, and, um, and Peru, which held the COP presidency through 2015 until that point, worked together hand in hand throughout the year. They held a series of meetings first in Lima and later four times at the ministerial level in Paris, not to negotiate text, but to agree on trying to explore what the landing zones might be with respect to the most difficult issues. The socialization of these issues and the process and the possible solutions they undertook among ministers and the teams that they recruited to help them went far to produce positive outcome in December. My parting observation here is that the UNFCCC can be a difficult place in which to maneuver, uh, with many constraints that are not normally encountered elsewhere. It views anyone coming into the UNFCC process to make no assumptions and to seek to learn the territory well in advance. And this, I recall a wonderful quote written by Canada's ambassador to Washington uh, a number of years ago, a man named Alan Gottlieb. And it's called, um, I'll be with you in a minute, Mr. Ambassador. Uh, and he says at the outset that notwithstanding his many diplomatic assignments elsewhere, 
including ambassadorships to several other important countries, um, he realized in his first week in Washington that his prior experience, however extensive, wouldn't help him here at all. Uh, that this was just too different a place and he had to start from the beginning. It's quite an amazing book, so I highly recommend it to you. Um, I have a number of points on the key features of the agreement. I think in the interest of time, I'll forego those. I said I'll be responding to that in the questions if you like, but um, the agreement, frankly, is so short you can read it and you can actually digest it. So thank you very much. Thank you very much for those providing those insights in terms of looking at how the process um, evolved and how critical that process and the whole role of these individuals in terms of the co-chairs, but all of the parties who were at those meetings, how important everybody was in terms of the development of those trust relationships were in order to bring us to, to where we are. It really is an amazing story of the whole role of, of people working together and wanting something to come out at the end in a positive way. Um, so we will definitely come back and, and want to get your views with regard to some of those key elements too. And as you were leading edge, you were talking also about the whole role of France and the French presidency with regard to uh, COP21, the Conference of Parties in, in Paris. Uh, we thought that it was so important, therefore, to, to have uh, France be part of this briefing, to have the French government uh, uh, be represented here. And so I'm delighted to introduce Bruno Polo, who is the Councilor for Ecology, Transportation, and Energy at the Embassy here in Washington. Uh, where uh, Mr. Bullock has responsibility for uh, dealing with the United States as well as with uh, Canada. And he is a French born civil service with a background in financial, legal, and uh, technical issues and has had uh, numerous responsibilities in various uh, fields of public affairs as well as in the private sector. He's been an advisor to French transport ministers and uh, was then the chief economist of Planet Brand Airline, to give you an example uh, of that, and has been in charge of the economics of the French airline industry within the French government. He's held a broad range of responsibilities uh, within the French government, uh, dealing with international affairs and uh, a variety of UN agencies uh, uh, in, in terms of representing France. And one thing that I want to raise that I also thought was so important in the whole run-up to Paris was the important role that uh, the embassy played here in Washington in terms of its outreach to the policy community, to the business community, to leaders in civil society, to mayors, etc. Through many, many meetings, again, uh, uh, garnering opinions, building relationships, uh, the French Embassy uh, hosted and Bruno was in charge of this uh, a forum of communities for urban sustainability, um, and that was held last March. And throughout, there was this extensive work in terms of really trying to reach out and bring people together. 
which I think in terms of looking at the whole role of, of France with regard to hosting and, and leading uh, COP21 in Paris is really uh, quite incredible in terms of the role that they played and of course coming so quickly after the horrific bombings that occurred just a week before.
differentiation between developed and developing countries. That's what the Prime Minister Modi of India calls the final justice. Um, and that applies to all subjects. So which country basically are responsible uh, to helping the most vulnerable countries? Um, and one way of doing so is through uh, the commitment we provide on public opinion forms to do in, in, in financing uh, project in the field of uh, climate. So, as I, uh, as I mentioned uh, already, the involvement of civil society was uh, very important and played a role in the negotiations. Um, I would like, every time I meet the negotiator, I'd like to have this story of how NGOs uh, were part of the negotiation, they were, they were observers, how uh, involvement of fantastic implications uh, of uh, cities, networks of cities, of businesses throughout the world uh, were helping the negotiators. And my feeling is that uh, if you are 60, if there are 60 negotiators in this room for a week and we have, we have a task to achieve, or if we are in the same conditions, if we know that, outside this door, when we go back to our hotels tonight and for the coffee, uh, we will need people who are as much to this as we are, but with different agenda and talk to us, we will come with some uh, different um, results. And I think that in some way that's what happened in Paris. So the civil society, we put the, all the initiatives in a big basket that we call the Luna Paris Action Agenda, and that's the simplification. Under that umbrella, uh, those are the numerous initiatives, more than actually 11,000 stakeholders were presenting either in Paris uh, at the COP of Limoges or within the city, or on the uh, website that was provided by the UN, their contribution, their commitment, their initiatives. We'll have more details in the hands of Adam. Give you an idea, I will just quote a few of them. Um, one is the, uh, the first one is the, the uh, portfolio for uh, the decarbonization coalition. So, um, numerous, more than 100 companies um, committed to get out of carbon, make it easier, or to provide financing uh, to the green economy. Another one is the Pact. I can't see it here, so we can read the group. So the Paris Pact on water and, and, um, and climate change adaptation, which aims at not only exchanging good practices between uh, river business managers, but also brings a big amount of money. Another one is, uh, of course, the International Solar Alliance, that we have heard of uh, recently, and there are in everything. There is a building alliance. There is a, a building alliance for 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 green uh, building or energy efficiency. There are commitments in the field of public transportation, etc. Agriculture, et forest, you name it. So um, the DLPA uh, is what we will uh, one of the one of the things we will constitute uh, this year. Actually. 
we set ourselves as the prison civil relative state of the cup until we head over the prison to Morocco next November. Uh, so we have three priorities. Of course, the first one is to have that agreement signed and ratified. Uh, and I'll come back to that. Maybe uh, not everyone is having with international negotiation, but we have an agreement. So that comes into force, it has to be ratified by a certain number of parties. And here it's 55% of uh, the parties, which have, which represent more than 55% of the global mission. I have to ask, when is that 50% measured? Is it together? When it's ratified by that number of parties, it comes into force uh, the date it is decided. The second, uh, the second priority is the preparation and implementation. Uh, as Dr. Weisinger mentioned, there, there is the agreement and there are decisions which are part of the agreement and I also urge you to uh, go through to read it. And there are many um, issues that still have to be determined that have to be fine-tuned. I mentioned the five-year review, I mentioned the transparency, the record uh, climate finance, uh, all those motions represent both principles and in many cases they have to be uh, more uh, defined uh, put into uh, national policies and uh, that will prepare the, the, the implementation of the agreement. And for that there is a process in course. There will be uh, a new meeting in one in May. One is where usually the negotiators for the city. So that's where they, they have their base. Issues. We will also 
work to be an interpretation of, of Africa, and I have noticed actually that this uh, very Congress very uh, recently passed the uh, Electrified electrical Africa Bill, or Act, um, which I'm, I'm quite happy. And I just mentioned uh, Quito, the Habitat Tree, um, which is a United Nations Conference on Sustainable Urban Development that occurs every two years. Um, the next occurs is uh, next October, and this will be a great, a good occasion, a really, uh, good opportunity to see the Paris Agreement in action. You cannot talk about climate development, you cannot, by the way, talk about sustainable development goals, uh, and climate supporting those three uh, issues are going to be involved. So, um, these stats and all these comes to come to come. And we aim to, uh, we didn't see this, so, Back. I think it's a problem with the projector of trying to fix it. <laughs> okay, because I have it here. So I'll go forward um, with my nice slides to tell you that also, again, actually, how do we want to achieve those priorities? We want to pursue the negotiation, we want to implement the LPA, and um, by the way, to implement the LPA was decided that. France and Morocco will designate a champion, which will be the chief coordinator. I'm very happy to confirm uh, that uh, Laurent Figuera, who was the chief negotiator, being designated as the French champion a few days ago. And I, today, I don't know, I can call who has not designed uh, this champion, but they have already uh, built their, their team. And um, negotiation of PA, and there is a third issue in 2016, which is, well, that will be, mm -hmm. um, the third issue is things that have not been covered by the top, and I'm talking about the maritime uh, sector, the aviation sector, or HFCs, and we will still work on that. And for example, aviation, very since uh, last week, or two weeks, a big technical meeting in Montreal at the ITO, the UN body for aviation, and they just two days ago came up with new standard for aviation, which makes it, by the way, the first global agreement of the sector on, on uh, standards on, on safety. So work is uh, ongoing. I my hope that says the same, just a bit more complicated. Here you have the negotiations with the different uh, milestones. Here you have the LPA and, of course, um, the Paris Agenda, since it covers all the initiatives, is very complicated. Uh, you're seeing uh, with IRENA and you're seeing some Yes, those levels, based on the slide, uh, there, will be, um, there will be a meeting of civil society in Nantes, France, at the end of the year. All this is supposed to, uh, uh, all those initiatives will converge into um, decarbonization. And here are the three uh, other domains that I just mentioned. Now, just to conclusion, I just want to mention that France will be mobilized more than ever. Uh, and we 
uh, after Dan and Bruno so well described um, the preparation for the COP21 and what happened there and the outcome and what's next, um, my focus will be more on um, the current implementation of uh, what is our target and uh, what is our so-called um, national contribution to the, um, to the climate policy process. Uh, but first of all, let me, let me share one observation um, around this Paris Agreement. Actually, um, from, from the German perspective, it was outstanding what we observed uh, the role of the United States. Actually, uh, we had seen different times uh, regarding the role of the United States. I think with uh, this, particularly uh, with a proactive role and uh, with their activities uh, partnering with China and with India and being so active, I think this outcome would never happened. And uh, at the same time, uh, we also congratulate France for uh, a wonderful uh, hosting and managing the process. Um, in Germany, actually, we, we are quite happy uh, with the uh, Paris Agreement. Of course, we uh, were looking for legally binding um, agreement in the beginning, but of course it was clear for everybody that this would not be possible uh, with a number of parties in the United States, uh, given the situation in the Congress. Uh, so we are happy, very happy with the outcome. And um, in Germany, this is a, a, the boring part. Um, not much has changed since then because the implementation of uh, what we think is necessary doesn't change so much after Paris. Because we did that already before, and the exciting part is we are well underway already on our development and on our energy policy, which is very crucial for implementing our climate policy. I just wanted to show you some elements of what is going on in Germany, uh, where are we working at. And um, the most important part, the centerpiece of our climate policy is, of course, the uh, so-called energy transition, uh, because uh, the only chance for us to really drive down our greenhouse gas emissions is support from the energy sector. And that is why we have very ambitious targets um, all over the uh, energy sector. We want to drive down the emissions, not only in the energy sector, but overall by 80 to 95 percent by 2050. Uh, with regard to renewable energies, we identify as the main source uh, which is available in Germany, uh, carbon-free source. We want to um, we want to boost the use of uh, renewable energies in the electricity sector uh, and achieve at least 80 percent uh, in the electric electricity sector and more than 60 percent overall. And we think it's also important in order to achieve our other goals to improve our energy efficiency. So our target here is to uh, drive down the energy demand uh, by 50 percent until 2050. So with regard to renewables, we are quite well underway. Actually, just the last year, our percentage of renewable energy in the uh, electricity sector reached 30%. Uh, we came from almost nothing, so if you look over the last 10 years, uh, we more than tripled our uh, share of renewable energies, and it's working quite well in the electricity sector, and of course, uh, this is the best sector, that's why we always show it. Uh, with regard to, to other sectors, particularly the transport sectors, we are still working on different solutions. Uh, uh, 
up to the electricity sector. That means we basically have to decarbonize that sector by the middle of the century. And that is uh, basically our target. So Germany, as the United States, still relies on the use of coal. So 45% of our electricity comes from coal power plants. And of course, uh, this doesn't match with our emission targets. So by the midst of the century, we probably will have renewables 8 to 9 percent, and then the rest uh, stemming from uh, less emission-intensive gas. Uh, the process of the energy transition is a very complex one, as you can imagine. And uh, we follow it very intensively, and it's, it's a multitask project, and we have an implementation plan for, for all the important sectors. And this is basically uh, managed by the Ministry for Economic Affairs and Energy. Well, um, I wanted to present a few challenges which we have, of course, in implementing our policy. The first ones drive down the emissions. Uh, the first 20 years were quite successful in driving down our emissions. Our next target is minus 40 percent compared to 1990. Until 2020, we stand at 27%, so there's a lot of things to do. And we basically will have to uh, touch upon um, the, the coal sector, so we have to develop new measures which are very difficult to implement. Uh, and we just learned, not, not only since yesterday, that in this country it's very difficult to um, bring through a measure on uh, coal power plants, and uh, the same is true for Germany. So uh, without the coal sector, actually, we won't, uh, without achieving success in the coal sector, we won't achieve our targets, our emission targets. Uh, the second very important sector is um, using, tapping the, the saving potential in the buildings, two-thirds of the energy spent in uh, private households is spent on heating or cooling, and um, that is where we can save 80% of our energy use. And we are working on that with giving incentives uh, for electric, uh, for energetic renovation of buildings, for example. Um, another big challenge in Germany is uh, providing for uh, a better infrastructure, and uh, one major project is building electricity transmission lines between the north and the south because we will have a lot of uh, additional winds coming from the north and uh, we just started with offshore wind and there will be a lot of electricity being produced in the north uh, but our demand centers are mainly in the south and in the west so we will need uh, high voltage transmission lines for that and then of course the whole um, the whole infrastructure has to become much more intelligent. So that is, that is a big project over the, next, over the next decades. And in the long run, of course, we will need uh, storage. And then if you look at the electricity sector again, everything is about flexibility. So in the future, uh, the concept of base power will not be needed anymore. We are looking for flexibility solutions, including uh, storages, including demand response, including uh, smart grids. So that's basically uh, what is ahead of us and how we are implementing um, the, the climate policy and our climate targets. This is uh, a first take from the German perspective. Thank you.
And Chris, I think that we've seen a lot of the cost uh, of wind and solar, and particularly offshore wind, uh, those costs have really been driven down by the um, much earlier deployment of those technologies by Germany uh, than if you, because Germany's really led the world in terms of, of uh, very, very rapid deployment, and, which has really, really helped the economics uh, for everybody else in the state. Uh, so let's open it up for your questions or comments, and if you could just identify yourself, please. Uh, let's 
say, in a not supportive way in the end, and the Clean Power Plan might not survive the way it is now. But still, we see uh, there's a lot of uh, reason why this development uh, will change. Thanks, because I think that everyone is looking at this whole issue and and obviously as both speakers uh, made clear, there is so much that is already underway and in fact I know that there are meetings here until this week involving state regulators and uh, state energy officials uh, looking at how things are moving forward. Um, over here. Hi, Dean Scott, Uber BNA here. I guess my question is also uh, for uh, our friends from France and Germany. It asked a little bit about uh, the way in which we created the agreement in Paris in terms of having a pledge based system. Does the Supreme Court decision sort of raise questions in terms of the detail that countries would have put forth in their inner IMDCs, which is rather vague in terms of where each party was to get its emissions reduction. And here we are, sort of this question, these questions have been raised by a court decision on a key component of one country's life. I'm not sure I totally got the question. Is it that uh, I think this is not very precise and we are not sure how they would be enforced. Well, for example, the U.S., if you look at the U.S. Uh, pledge, it's IMC. It's rather brief. It's a few pages, I think, at best. So that, that's the question. And, and so it doesn't, and it doesn't really, I believe, suggest how much of its emission reduction has become from the clean power plant. So I'm saying, in terms of, you know, what does it get from this one policy that's now under attack? So what I'm saying is, looking back, should we have had more uh, specifics from countries to put more meat on exactly how they were going to get to the emissions reduction they were pledging in the first place? Uh, yeah, I think you are going into the detailed mechanism of the negotiation, and, and it was correctly explained uh, at the beginning that it is a bit complicated to have the 200 countries agree on something, and uh, that is the next step, actually. Uh, this transparency, this, uh, those ways of mechanism uh, of reviewing by the parents, um, that would be, that would be a, a way to monitor what people do. Now, what they will actually do uh, effectively uh, is left to uh, every country, and we have not, for the time being, set up a blue helmet force to uh, go and enforce the countries. What they have I think that one of the maybe two things which are more or less the same, uh, very briefly, the momentum that was in Paris. And the fact, uh, I've, talk, I've talked about millions of people on the street. Uh, I won't be wrong on that because we, we all have seen that there was an organization around the world. Uh, and that come, and this one point is made in shame. Uh, if others don't do uh, what they have committed to do, there will be pressure uh, by, the, by the street. I know a bit of China. China, um, I will declare, is a democracy like uh, here or I don't know. Nevertheless, in China, environment is a very sensitive issue, and the people, the real people, we the people, the 
basically uh, the, the pressure they got on the on, on, on British. Dan, do you want to talk about that piece of the process a little bit more in terms of these commitments and what was involved in that and the, that process? I think that'd be really helpful. Sure. Um, well, as Bruno said, um, it, trying to get 200, close to 200 countries to do anything, even to agree you know, on what time of day it is, is rather a big deal. Um, and uh, I think what we had, what's, what's remarkable to me about the Paris Agreement is just how robust it is, uh, given all of the concerns uh, that the countries have. And one of the ways we dealt with that was by saying, okay, we'd like you to come forward and we'd like all, all countries to come forward and put your contributions on the table, um, which is what they did. In fact, as we came to Paris, I think we had nearly 190 countries had come forward with INDCs, which was, I mean, it frankly staggered everyone. No one had any idea that we would do that well uh, prior to the Paris, uh, the, the beginning of the Paris negotiation. Um, and that commitment that they've made in those INDCs is an initial uh, commitment. I mean, it's, it's one um, under the agreement that is nationally determined, so each country decides what to do and, and how to approach it. But then each country has agreed that that will be uh, updated periodically on a, essentially on a, um, well, I think ultimately will be on a five-year um, cycle uh, in terms of the mitigation commitments. And I think it's quite remarkable that these, it's, we knew that these INDCs, even though there were 100, nearly 190 of them, everyone knew it was very clear from a number of studies that have been done, they would not add up to minus two degrees, much less minus 1.5, which was the one of the objectives of the agreement. So then the question became, okay, well, what are you going to do? Well, what we're going to do is we have this fairly rigorous process in which we're going to be periodically renewing those commitments and discussing those commitments. And it's not so much the pressure that comes from governments pointing the finger at each other as it is from countries putting these out publicly for review and consideration by everyone. Other governments, but NGOs, think tanks, uh, analytical groups and so forth, is that public pressure um, in light of the concerns that people have about climate change that we think is going to lead to ultimately to the kind of action um, that is needed to obtain the objectives. But trying to do too much in the beginning, you say, should we have been more specific in Paris? Um, I don't think so because I think we ended up in Paris with something that was really remarkable for what we were trying to accomplish. And it's, it's, a, it's a beginning. It's not the end of the process, as Jim mentioned. Maybe some more comment on, on the gap you were talking about. I think that's that's correct uh, observation. There is of course a gap uh, if you compare the reduction uh, from the IPCs and then the implemented policies. And of course, there's always gap. So I mean, two people here calculated that might be 50, 60, 70 million CO2 uh, tons equivalent. In Germany, it would be around 20, 30 million tons. That is true, but I think that's, that's the very nature of um, the target. So uh, you start with the target, and then, of course, uh, you have to implement more. You have to do more than only the today's implemented policies, and that's exactly what we're looking for. Okay. Uh, uh, hi, my name is George. I'm from Congressman Austin's office. I also represent, I also represent a parliamentarian in Australia. Um, Australia is the first country to go backwards on climate change policy. Um, 
recently the turning out of the former turning out of government um, got rid of the carbon tax. How does the Paris climate deal react to actions like these? And what are the contingency what are the contingency plans if countries underperform to the targets they've set? Um, is it just that they get shamed for not doing it, or is the actual sort of reaction uh, where countries will actually pressure more than just, oh, you didn't do it? <laughs> yeah, I mean, without, without uh, actually, I was going to flip and try to quote you some things from the agreement itself, but the, the notion is that countries will come forward with uh, nationally determined contributions, and that the successive nationally determined contributions will be more progressive than the last. So that's, there's something that, that, um, that people are exhorted to do this. Now, you can adjust uh, your contributions along the way if you, if you have to, but the, the effort, uh, the, all the trends are forward and to progressively lower greenhouse gas emissions because that's what we think the science is going to demand. So, in terms of are there penalties for not doing this? Will people come after you? What, what we found, I think, in many other um, global environmental agreements is that even when someone is found to be in violation of a commitment, for, for example, or not meeting a commitment, uh, it's very rare that anyone goes after them. And, and there's no, there's no uh, court where you can sue them. And the whole issue is how do we help them get back into compliance? Because at the end of the day, you're not so much interested in penalizing as you are in helping them to achieve compliance. That's the goal of the agreement, and that's the notion behind this. It's much more facilitated than it is punitive. Going forward. Now, there's been an agreement that there would be a 50 50 split 
between adaptation on the one hand, or trying to mitigate the supply, I shouldn't use the word mitigation, trying to uh, increase resilience and, and um, uh, help countries uh, deal with the adverse impacts of climate change on the one hand, and mitigation, which is essentially to reduce, avoid, or sequester greenhouse gas emissions on a grant or equivalent basis, I should mention that. So there is this notion that adaptation and mitigation should be um, uh, at, at a certain par, and there's increased focus because for many developing countries, um, even if they stopped emitting tomorrow, it wouldn't change the ultimate path of, of global emissions. It's really their concerns have much more to do with adaptation. Uh, and it's also our concern because we've seen um, in, over the course of time that if problems are not dealt with within countries, they become international problems. So. Yes, thank you for a, a great panel. Uh, Dan Wildcat, you should member of the Muskogee Nation, faculty uh, member Haskell Indian Nations University, and convener of the Indigenous Peoples Climate Change Working Group. Uh, I want to know how come there's no mention of Indigenous peoples and obligations, responsibilities that larger governments have to the Indigenous peoples of those lands. In the body of the document, there's some language in the preamble. And there are appended uh, requisitions where it speaks to indigenous issues. But I think, given the fact that many indigenous peoples around the globe are living in vulnerable uh, environments where they are really going to be the first to affect some of the most devastating features of, of climate change, whether they're in the uh, central rainforest of Brazil, uh, uh, fighting dams, uh, or whether they're uh, in coastlines that are very vulnerable, or, or uh, desert and very arid areas where continuous uh, sort of uh, maintenance of life is, is maintained, um, I'm a little bit disappointed at the presence of indigenous peoples in large numbers at COP21, that there was no inclusion, actually, in the agreement itself um, regarding those, those issues of indigenous peoples. Thanks. I think, um, first of all, there's uh, widespread recognition of the concerns um, uh, of indigenous peoples and the impacts of climate change on indigenous peoples in, in, in their communities. And as you noted, um, there is recognition in this agreement and the preamble of uh, the rights of indigenous peoples. But your question is, why don't you have something operative in the operative section of the agreement? And there I can just tell you that it's all part of this negotiation. Um, it's very difficult. Some of these issues, uh, some of the issues we were dealing with, raise very sharp concerns among certain countries. And what you could negotiate and how far you could go was just a matter of trying to see what the balance would be and, and where we could where we could make progress. So I think we have it in the preamble. Uh, there is wide, widespread recognition of the rights and the concerns of indigenous peoples. It wasn't possible to go further in the body of the agreement at that time. I can just talk. Hi, Ori uh, Guten with the Center for American Progress. And this question is uh, for Mr. Polda. So you talk a lot about this year kind of working with Morocco to transition leadership over the COP. And so Morocco has recently been developing as a clean energy leader. Uh, but throughout most of the MENA region, uh, clean energy has fallen far behind and efficient cuts have fallen far behind. Uh, 
in Saudi Arabia in past years has been uh, like an inhibitor to conversations on climate negotiations. So how do you think that Morocco could use its leadership and its host status of COP22 to kind of facilitate greater transition to a clean energy embrace in the MENA region overall? Would 
any agreement be without the United States. And I think that's what Bruno was just uh, answering, and, and I guess in my own experience, um, it's quite important for the United States to take part in this global effort. Um, because not only because the United States, uh, our own emissions are so significant uh, in comparison with other countries, but also because we have the resources in terms of the people, the technology, the know-how, the innovation, the more crucible of innovation in this country. And it's quite important to solving this problem globally that we engage and that we take part. And, and I think what the bigger concern I would have is the signal that it would send to the rest of the world about how serious we are about the problem. I think the signal has been very positive up to this point. Um, I think um, it's very important that we keep it positive. Okay, so I would like to add uh, another point that we did not discuss much today, and just regarding on what Dan said. Uh, not only uh, in terms of, well, it is a lot of signal values. Uh, addressing the climate change is also building an all new green economy, new world, new world. And that, that is the creation of uh, hundreds and thousands of jobs. And it is also developing an industry. Uh, we insisted on the capacities of Germany uh, in a certain uh, field of renewable energy. And they're doing that not only uh, on, on their own, in their own country, they, they can't export the country. Um, we all know that to be harmonized, we have to work on uh, energy storage, on the batteries, on smart grids, the um, uh, internet of Germany. Uh, those technologies um, will be developed here, there, and if the US is not the world, they will lack a bit of credibility to export their, their, their own capacity. So, in terms of economies, we will source now. Thank you very, very much. And I think as as we've heard today, and I want to thank our wonderful panel because this has just been an extreme wealth of experience and of knowledge and in terms of providing us all some insights about the process, what all's been involved, what is part of this agreement, the kinds of momentum and commitments of countries around the world. I think it's really quite incredible. And now, there will be, obviously, need to be a lot of vigilance in terms of going forward, in terms of knowing what we know in terms of the transparency of the process and the ongoing review that is scheduled to happen on a five-year, every five-year basis. And I think that as our panelists have also talked about the kinds of changes that we're already seeing, in the United States, in, uh, in their respective countries, with regard to many different kinds of actions and activities that are already happening on the technology side and um, on whether it's adaptation and resilience or in terms of looking at mitigation efforts. Um, EESI will be pursuing a variety of briefings during this year, looking at various technology issues as well as looking at some of the other issues that are coming up in the Clean Power Plan. Just want to mention that we will have a briefing on uh, February uh, 25th, I believe it is, that is looking at some of the environmental justice issues in conjunction with the Clean Power Plan. So I want to thank you all for coming. I want to thank our terrific panel. And if you've got questions, whatever, please do follow up with our panel members or with the ESI 
happy to help you uh, look at this issue more fully. Thank you all very, very much.